February is Black History Month. Since the time of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, white supremacism has gotten worse. What are the prospects ahead? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Growing up in the nearly all-white suburbs in the 50s and 60s, one of the things that excited me about history was that progress moved ever forward in a straight line. It got better all the time. At the time, I was shocked seeing racist cops down south with their attack dogs and fire hoses. I thought, wow, what's wrong with those people down there? I truly thought racism was a bizarre, ugly aberration. Boy, was I wrong. Fast forward to January 6, 2021, when so-called patriots attacked the Capitol and called black Capitol police officers the N-word. And police killings, of course, go on and on. February is Black History Month, and what have we learned? Just yesterday, I read on Facebook someone declared Black Lives Matter as a hate group, thugs who loot and burn. As someone who is not a person of color, I can say that the more one learns about black history in our country, the more there is to learn. It's important, and it's not a pretty picture. Is it getting better? disquieting things that truly must be learned. Black people know by experience, but people who have lived outside of that experience very much need to get it. The comments on Facebook made me sad, especially because how old and deeply ingrained such sentiments are. It brought me back to something our guest today reminds us about. In 1959, Mike Wallace presented a TV documentary called The Hate That Hate Produced. It focused on Malcolm Little, also known as Detroit Red, who converted to Islam in prison and, of course, later became known as Malcolm X. The show focused on him because he was far more aggressive and militant than the more moderate and non-threatening Martin Luther King, who was more easily embraced by the white middle class. The changing relationship between the two truly vital 20th century leaders is the focus of an important book by our author, uh, it's called The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Our guest is history professor Peniel E. Joseph. Thank you, Professor Joseph, for being here. Thank you for having me. One reviewer wrote, there's no way to understand the history, struggle, and debate over race and democracy in contemporary America without understanding Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr.'s relationship to each other, to their own era, most critically to our time. Peniel Joseph holds a joint professorship appointment at the LBJ School of Public Affairs in the History Department of the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas in Austin. He's also the founding director of the LBJ School Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. His career focus has been on black power studies, which encompasses interdisciplinary fields such as Africana studies, law and society, women's and ethnic studies, and political science. Of course, his most recent book is The Sword and the Shield. He's also written Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, a narrative history of black power in America and dark days, bright nights from black power to Barack Obama. And his book Stokely, A Life, 
has been called the definitive biography of Stokely Carmichael, the man who popularized the phrase black power. Included among Joseph's other book credits is the editing of The Black Power Movement, Rethinking the Civil Rights Black Power Era, and Neighborhood Rebels, Black Power at the Local Level. Again, thank you so much for being with us. In place of actual history, as you surely know, Americans prefer simplified myth. In this vein, what has been done regarding how Martin Luther King and Malcolm X are pictured in the 21st century? How have they been mythologized? Well, we think of uh, Dr. King as this American apostle of nonviolence and the shield that prevented a, a, a violent era from being more, even more blood-soaked. And we think of Malcolm as really just this political sword and this fiery militant by any means necessary. And we think of those two as being diametrically apart from each other. Mm. So Malcolm is sort of leading a movement that is the civil rights movement's evil twin. He's both King's evil doppelganger and the movement's evil twin um, that leads to black power and uh, racial and ethnic discourse. And really this idea of identity politics is something negative when um, in actuality, they are two uh, of the most iconic leaders of post-war um, not just America, but just post-war global human rights struggles who start off as adversaries and then become rivals and then really become each other's alter egos and teach mm. each other these these wonderful lessons about um, radical black dignity and radical black citizenship and why a movement actually needs both. So in, in a way, what I try to do with The Sword and the Shield and in that book is really recover the actual historical Malcolm and Martin and how once we understand how they converged uh, and how radical and revolutionary their politics were, um, we're better able to confront our own era of global white supremacy. You mentioned the 19, the, the January 6th, 2021 mm. um, white, white riot, white supremacist riot at the U.S. Capitol. There's no way to understand that without really understanding uh, Malcolm and Martin. Ah, interesting. And I, I do find it interesting that the legend, the mythologizing of Martin Luther King is such that even Ronald Reagan had to speak well of him. As you write, we've turned him into this anodyne, milquetoast figure. The simplified caricature is that he was not a revolutionary, but he's kind of pigeonholed as exclusively a safe civil rights leader. What do we miss about Martin Luther King by doing that? Well, you know, we, we really miss the radical and revolutionary king who pushed back against um, war, American imperialism, uh, structural violence and racism, called for a revolution of values, called for us to build a beloved community. Um, but one who was interested in pushing us to not just uncomfortable conversations, but to having um, radical policy transformations. And really, as early as 1963, in a letter from Birmingham jail, mm -hmm. King pushes back against white liberals and white progressives and says that he's extremely disappointed in the church. He's extremely disappointed in those who are obsessed with an unjust peace and don't want a disorderly struggle for justice in the United States and globally, right? So when we think about King, even as early as the March on Washington, he talks about uh, racism in Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh -huh. right? Mm. The site of the reinvigorated Klan in 1915. He says that Alabama and Mississippi are states filled with vicious racists, 
And the governors of those states, their lips are dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, which is the words of the Confederacy and the white supremacists of the 19th century. So when we think about Dr. King, King is evolving, and I argue in The Sword and the Shield, it's really Malcolm's example that really radicalizes King. We see, we start to see the more radical King in full bloom after the Watts Los Angeles Rebellion in August of 1965, uh, less than a week after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And King comes down to Watts, and Watts burns from August 11th to August 18th. And King listens. King is an attentive listener, and he sees that all the civil rights legislation that he's been a part of passing the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights mm -hmm. Act of 65, but even the Brown decision, mm -hmm. uh, the desegregation decision in 1954, just have not been enough. And Watts is an example of police brutality, mass incarceration, and the way in which mass incarceration really represents an investment um, to perpetuate the racial caste system and to continue uh, racial capitalism and the super exploitation of black bodies and black communities and and the reciprocal relationship between that and lily white suburbs and white achievement, which is really white mediocrity mm. that is disguised as white achievement. Right. And so King recognizes that and he calls that out. That's what's so extraordinary about Dr. King. So really the last recorded conversation we have between him and LBJ is right after Watts. And then by 1966, King goes and moves to Chicago, and he's, he's very, very critical of uh, racial capitalism and the way in which uh, race, uh, capitalism, uh, violence uh, in the United States are marginalizing, punishing, incarcerating, demonizing, dehumanizing black bodies. And then certainly by 67, April 4th, 1967, uh, at the Riverside Church in uh, New York, mm -hmm. comes out against the Vietnam War. But more than that, he really comes out as this anti-imperialist, this human rights activist, and he's really drawing from Malcolm X. Malcolm X had come out against the Vietnam War in 1964. Malcolm X had critiqued racial capitalism both at Oxford University and other places. Malcolm X was an anti-imperialist. And King says uh, in New York that the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And that's right. going to be a bitter but beautiful struggle to try to transform American democracy. But he also says the United States doesn't have the political maturity uh, yet to build the beloved community, right? So King, the, the king we miss is the king who is willing to speak truth to power, who's organizing the Poor People's Campaign, mm -hmm. Um, who's, who's providing these uh, lessons. And again, he's drawn from Malcolm. Malcolm had always talked about racial slavery. Malcolm X, I argue, um, is black America's prosecuting attorney who's mm -hmm. charging white America with a series of crimes uh, that, that go back to racial slavery. By 67, 68, Dr. King is doing so as well. So it's really an extraordinary transition. Yeah, it really is. And how did you come up with the title, The Sword and the Shield? And how did you get so interested in researching uh, this book? You know, the easiest thing to come up with was the title, yeah. <laughs> because I've been, I've been, I've been with uh, and in this milieu of black uh, political radicalism for decades and decades now. And I, you know, I, I still am in there, and it's a life—it's a lifetime project to be fortunate enough to be engaged in. So, all the work that I've done on the Black Power movement 
um, you know, drew me closer to, to, to people like King and, and Stokely Carmichael and the Angela Davis's Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer's. And um, as I got deeper into writing and completing these different books, I thought that all the secondary literature that I was reading on Malcolm and Martin, including, you know, there's great Pulitzer Prize winning biographies of King and Malcolm and Martin, National Book Award winning uh, The Dead Are Rising, A Life of Reinvention. These are really brilliant books. But the way in which I situate Malcolm, both in this book and in my first book, Waiting for the Midnight Hour and others, is that I always felt that Malcolm was not given credit as this dynamic um, organizer and intellectual, um, mm. this person who's a prisoner rights activist, this, this, this faith leader, um, but also this theorist of democracy as well. And then in terms of mm. King, I always felt that what we never did with King is give, give us an arc of King's career where he starts out one way, even though he had read aspects of the black radical tradition and aspects of a, a European American radical tradition too. He had read and imbibed the black social gospel. He had read Paul Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr and Gandhi and Marx and Benjamin Mays and Howard Thurman. He had read all of that. Um, but to see how he evolves over time, it's a public career from 1955 to 68. For Malcolm, it's a public career from 1952 to 1965. So I was really interested in how those converged. And past books about Malcolm and Martin really were stuck on the dichotomy. Uh, Louis Lomax's To Kill a Black Man, James Cone, American Dream versus Nightmare. And although I appreciated those books and I appreciate um, um, especially uh, James Cone's scholarship, I thought that there's much more convergence than uh -huh. divergence. And it was really the right time to write the book because I, I had been so uh, deeply interested in the archive of, of contextualizing the Black Power period globally, uh, especially in my first book that doing a dual biography with Martin and Malcolm, it was the right time because I got to know Martin and Malcolm through a much wider historical excavation and research mm. into the milieu. So instead of what most biographers do is they try to learn a period through people. I think that's exactly wrong. I think you need to learn a period. And then once you learn the period through many, many different people and yeah. organizations and perspectives, that then you can you can tease out through uh, different dynamic figures. You can shed even more light on the period, but you need to learn the period first before you can do a biography of of, of specific people who were shaped by that period and then in turn shape the period. Interesting, and it's so important to learn actual history. I, it bugs me when people just especially white people, I must say, just go stop at the myth and don't look beyond that. We don't want to see the real history. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, uh, Professor Peniel E. Joseph about his book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And the fact that you can say revolutionary lives of both of them, that would shake a lot of people up. You know, Beck, I, I remember when I was a, a teenager, we were split between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and uh, it was interesting, and they, they were different around 1965, which was when, as the first time, when I was 14, when I went to an anti-war protest, at that time I was taken aback by the harassment, the beating up of peace marchers outside the 
Arlington Street Church, which I'm sure you're aware of, that educated me unintentionally about the dynamics of change. You're clearly a leading expert in Black American history. What about your life experience sparked you to choose this direction, your career in history? Well, yes, it's definitely. I grew up in New York City, uh, the proud son of Haitian immigrants uh, who came here in 1965. Uh, So I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens, New York, and my mother, uh, who's 81 years young now, um, was a hospital worker, SEIU 1199, trade union. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was, um, on picket lines in elementary school in New Uh York city. Uh, and that's what really politicized uh, me. So my, my family is a very political family. Um, and we were imbibed on, um, Haitian history, African-American history, Caribbean history, um, histories of, of black feminism, Mm. um, but also histories of interracial political organizing and the way in which blacks and whites who were um, progressive at times conjoined in anti-racist um, unionism, um, you know, left politics, radical politics, uh, uh, politics for social justice and human rights, um, and really at a global at a global level. So this is you know the, the way in which this uh, the confluences between America and Africa and Europe mm. and the Middle East and the Caribbean um, were all a part of uh, my growing up and. When you think about a union like SCIU 1199, it's, it's uh, you know uh, one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse union in the country. And even then, you had blacks and Jews and Puerto Ricans and yes. Italians and 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 Eastern European immigrants and folks from the Caribbean all coming together to get. And these are bread and butter issues. We we struck to get a living wage. We struck to get dental care and better health care. And as a as a child, I was on those picket lines and people are talking to you and they're explaining it to you. And uh, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary education. And so you could see the connection between um, a strike that your mother is taking part of. Yeah. And after the strike is won, uh, you're able to go see the dentist. And beforehand, you weren't able to see the dentist, <laughs> right? And, and you, your, your mom is connecting the dots for you, right? So wow. that's the real education. And I grew up in segregated. Uh, Jamaica, Queens, same neighborhood that Asada Shakur grew up in. And we saw so much um, police brutality. And, you know, in high school, Michael Griffith was murdered by a white mob in Howard Beach in December of 1986. Uh Uh, Eleanor Bumpus was was murdered by the NYPD. So way before Black Lives Matter, I grew up in a New York City that was very politically active. There were people like Al Sharpton who were organizing Uh against police brutality uh, Herman, uh, Herbert Dowertree. There's so many different activists, different uh, uh, black women and men who were organizing. And so that's the milieu that I grew up in and that really um, inspired uh, me to to take on this vocation. And really the household I grew up in um, was just a place that offered an unbelievable um, political education. And my mom's a big fan of uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X. And she was a big fan of, of all the radical uh, political activists of the era um, and draws a line in the sand around social justice and human rights. I don't know how, if you're paying attention, you wouldn't be, quite frankly, but there are those on the other side. Um, and I must say, I was lucky, too, in the family I grew up in. Uh, liberal Jews, we were against the war in Vietnam. We were horrified by the racism we saw on black and white TV, you know, down south. 
but boy, I'll tell you, we we had a lot to learn. So it was a good place to start. And talk about learning history. Many kids have a hard time relating to history. What about the, the role of biography and help in enabling young people in different cultures today to better empath, empathize with and thus understand struggles and issues? Yeah, I think biography is hugely important because history um, at its best is storytelling and narratives. And we all want to hear stories. We all listen ah, to stories. Okay. So, but, but we live in a country where, you know, people are more willing to listen to Stephen King and, and, and fiction writers than they are um, uh, historians. That has changed in the last year, this year of racial political reckoning. So people like uh, my friend Ibram Kendi, uh, one, of, one of my former mentees actually, went to Temple University about a decade behind me, uh, brilliant and the bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, mm. so many different books about race, 400 Souls is a new anthology my book, The Sword and the Shield, people are listening to. So biography is hugely important in the sense that it can allow um, people who are uninitiated to engage with history through the compelling story of somebody's life and activism, right? So whether it's a Angela Davis or a John Lewis or uh, Martin and Malcolm. And I think for icons like Martin and Malcolm, biography is very important because if it's done well, it's going to... Um, really diminish the residue of the mythology and the legend and let people see the three-dimensional human beings. So I think we should be teaching um, uh, deeper biographies to people and stories about um, just American history, but certainly about African-American history. And that goes from racial slavery, you know, all the way to the present and, and before as well, in terms of uh, African and African-American history that's pre the encounter with, with the West. Well, I've heard it said that the truth shall make you free. And a lot of people don't want to see the truth, but biography obviously can do that. The storytelling, people like storytelling, that's for sure. And obviously Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were both powerful political and spiritual leaders of African Americans, but the two men met only once. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, they met on March 26, 1964 at the U.S. Senate while the Senate was filibustering the 1964 Civil Rights Act. They both came in support of the 64 Civil Rights Act. Malcolm had by that time left the Nation of Islam uh, acrimoniously, very famously, after saying the chickens have come home to roost after John F. Kennedy's assassination. And all Malcolm meant by that um, uh, but reporters took it a different way, yeah. was that the violence that the United States had unleashed domestically and globally had, had a boomerang effect. And so um, no one should be surprised or hurt right. uh, about the president's assassination. But he, the Nation of Islam used that as an excuse to silence him for 90 days and then uh -huh. kick him out. So Malcolm was organizing two different um, organizations in 1964, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated and the Organization of African Unity. African-American unity modeled after the Organization of African Unity. And so Malcolm is there really in transition. Uh, King is riding high in the aftermath of the March on Washington right. and is um, leading some marches in St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest city in the United States uh, that's connected to Spanish colonialism and Spanish slavery uh, in, in, in North America. And when we think about that meeting, it's a very, very important meeting because 
in 64 is when we're going to see them become much more close to each other politically. Uh, Malcolm is going to tell Robert Penn Warren, uh, the journalist, that mm. him and Dr. King have the same goals, and the goals are human dignity. Uh, Malcolm is going to not only meet with King on March 26th, but he's going to be in the audience in Harlem at the 369th Armory on December 17th, 1964, when Dr. King um, speaks to a capacity crowd of over 8,000 people uh, in the flush of winning his Nobel Peace Prize. And Malcolm is sitting right next to Andrew Young, the future United Nations ambassador and congressman uh, and, 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 you know, mayor of Atlanta. He's sitting right next to Andy Young, and he's listening to King, the entire speech. And Malcolm speaks about that speech uh, positively a few days later, because King is talking about so, the social democracy of Sweden and how mm -hmm. he was very pleased uh, of, of, of Scandinavia, rather, and how he was very pleased to see so little poverty there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, Malcolm visits King in Selma, but he doesn't get a chance to see King because King is incarcerated February uh, 4th, February 5th, 1965, really just a, a little more than two weeks before Malcolm's assassination. And he gets a chance to reunite with Andy Young, who's there at the Brown AME Chapel Church, and Coretta Scott King for the first time. And he, he does a speech in between Andrew Young and Coretta Scott King, and he tells uh, Mrs. King that um, he admires her husband. He is there to help and not hurt. And he wants people to see that there's an alternative if, um, if the ballot is not achieved. And so when we think about Malcolm's speech, the ballot or the bullet, that is really uh, an example of the influence of um, not just King, but the, the, the heroic period of the civil rights movement on Malcolm, who's, who's really the avatar of the black power movement. Yes. And that black power movement that Malcolm is leading is not a movement that only comes into being once he's assassinated. There is a black power movement that uh, converges, that parallels, that at times intersects and diverges from the civil rights uh, mm -hmm. movement, um, really even in the 1930s and 1940s. So mm -hmm. even when we think about the modern civil rights movement, it predates uh, the Brown decision and it extends past Dr. King's assassination and, and black power, it's the same thing. So Malcolm is leading that movement um, but when we re-narrate the movement, um, we we isolate and silo black power away mm. from civil rights, even though when we think about Malcolm and Martin, we have this black power leader and this civil rights leader um, who are who are in the same who are in the same time period uh, together. Working together in a way. I, it seems like Malcolm X was the prosecuting attorney, Martin Luther King, the defense attorney, but they both had the same client. Yeah, they did. And, and what's so extreme, uh, extraordinary about Dr. King is that over time, he goes from Malcolm transitions from being a prosecuting attorney to by 1964 being that statesman who goes to be one of the most fascinating aspects of Malcolm is the last year yes. where he um, is, is, is traveling to overseas trips to Africa. But I argue that that last year and the push from civil rights to human rights is really um, just a continued evolution of what came before. So I push back against this idea of a stark break. Malcolm had gone to the Middle East in 1959. Malcolm mm. was always concerned with human rights. And even Malcolm's epiphany in the Hodge, so-called epiphany about white people, mm -hmm. is really a literary uh, construct. Mm. Malcolm knew that there were white Muslims. He had met them 
1959. The reason why he's not um, able to say that publicly is that Malcolm is part of an organization. So if you're part of the Socialist Party or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, and we know this in our own time to a fault, a lot of times people um, toe to the party line. And you think about Trumpism and MAGA and the white riot January 6th, some people still won't um, criticize that because of the party line. So he didn't criticize the aspects of the Nation of Islam's mythology that he disagreed with because he was the spokesperson for the Nation of Islam. <laughs> That's why he didn't. <laughs> but he, he knew, and we, we, we have evidence that, that he knew, uh, but what's extremely interesting that last year is that he transitions into being that, that really this, this prime minister who is feted, who's, who takes the Hajj, who's there for five weeks in the Middle East from April to May, but then he's there for uh, five months from uh, July. You know, he flies to Cairo, Egypt by way of London, and he's there at the Organization of African Unity Conference. And to show you Malcolm's status as the statesman, he's able to meet with um, every single diplomatic leader and head of state that he wants to. So he's able to meet with Kwame Nkrumah mm. of Ghana. He's able to meet with Nandi Azikiwe of Nigeria. He's able to meet with Julius Nyeri of Tanzania. Mohamed Babu is a close friend of his, who's prime minister of Zanzibar. I mean, so it's really, really extraordinary um, the way in which, and John Lewis has said that in his memoir. John Lewis is he went to Kenya and he, he meets up with Malcolm X in Kenya briefly in 1964. But he says everywhere him and SNCC activist Donald Harris went in Africa, um, they were trailing behind Malcolm X yeah. and everyone was telling them how important uh, Malcolm was. And, and if they weren't on the same page as Malcolm, uh, they were going to be in trouble. So it's really extraordinary. It certainly is. And of course, the former president, who shall go nameless, referred to all of Africa as a shithole country. I hesitate to say that. And it's not even a country. It's a whole bunch of countries. Idiot. But uh, And the the fact that we had, there's this potential there. There's so much in Africa right now that, you know, if we were working with people in Africa, in the in the countries there, oh my goodness, the, the potential for positives in both you know, both Africa and the U.S. are tremendous. And people wanted to be friendly with the U.S. back then, you know, through ambassadors like uh, Malcolm X and, and other people like that. And we're just, uh, we're missing the boat there. And, of course, imperialism sort of gets in the way of that just a little bit. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about how Martin Luther King and Malcolm X influenced each other here at the end of Black History Month and how much we can learn still about the reality of those guys. Uh, and um, what I remember 65 to 68, Mel, or Martin Luther King's profile seemed to have faded somewhat. In what ways did he, as you say, start to lose that mainstream sheen? And in what ways... Did Malcolm's growing presence help King up his messaging game? Yeah, you know, when we think about Dr. King those last three years, uh, in the aftermath of Malcolm's assassination, Malcolm yeah. was assassinated February 21st, That's 1965, right. at the Audubon mm. uh, Ballroom uh, in Washington Heights, New York City. And we really see that King really transitions from being the defense 
attorney to Malcolm's prosecuting yeah. attorney. Certainly yeah. there's Stokely Carmichael, Palme Touré. But what we see with Dr. King is that King uh, becomes much more confrontational. He becomes much more of an explicit critic of white supremacy. He also starts to imbibe the language of black power and black political self-determination. He, in speeches, he talks about the, the racism of the American uh, vernacular saying white lies are little and black lies are really bad. No. This is Dr. King. He says that uh, the halls of Congress are running wild with racism. Yeah. Uh, to the American Psychological Association in 1967, Dr. King says that um, the greatest threat to peace in the country is chaos being produced by white racism and white people keep lying about the chaos they're producing mm. and says the saying that there'd be racial peace, but for the chaos that they are producing. Mm. So King becomes somebody who uh, is no longer receiving the standing ovations. Uh, the New York times is very critical of him uh, after winning the Pulitzer prize, mm. the Nobel, Nobel peace yeah. prize, because he comes out against the war in Vietnam um, and King, you know, the Poor People's Campaign is really instructive here because what King tries to do with the Poor People's Campaign, which he starts in Marks, Mississippi, um, is bring together this multiracial coalition to get a universal basic income, mm. guaranteed health care, uh, food justice, uh, decent housing, the elimination and eradication of segregation in schools and neighborhoods everywhere. So King organizes the first Occupy Washington movement. Mm. And yes, it's nonviolent, but King is really scaring so many different people. Mm. He's no longer on speaking terms with President Lyndon Johnson, who doesn't show up to his funeral as well. Oh so when we when we think about when we think about Dr. King, that Dr. King is really um, a man on fire. He's walking, mm. stalking through the United States like an Old Testament prophet. One of his favorite uh, quotes is uh, from the from from uh, Amos and uh, the prophet Amos and talking about justice rolling down uh, like a mighty like a mighty stream. Right. And so when we think about that king, he's Jeremiah and Moses and Amos, but he's also uh, when you think about Jesus and and at the temple of the money lenders and the money changers, you know, uh, the Jesus who says, "I come to bring not only the shield but the sword," ah. and, and is 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 really being disruptive. Uh, and confrontational. So that king is the king who, um, in 1968 in Marks, Mississippi, he's in tears as he sees uh, these black uh, poor folks, children with no shoes, um, really telling him how the war on poverty hasn't reached them. And Dr. King says that this is a crime, the way you're living here in the United States, in the richest nation in the country. But King also gives them a history lesson. And there's a great... Um, there's great film and archival footage of this. So it's not even just audio. And King starts to tell them about racial slavery. He starts to say that those 40 acres and a mule mm. promised during Reconstruction, black people weren't, didn't receive that, even though they fought in the Civil War and died. Um, but he says that uh, through the Homestead Act, uh, whites received millions of free acres, and they received the infrastructure to cultivate those acres all from the government, all for free. Mm. And he says, these are the same people who are now telling you right. in Mississippi to pull yourselves up by your bootstrap. Right. <laughs> so King is really, really extraordinarily confrontational. And he becomes this boldest critic after, after Malcolm of, of white supremacy and against racial capitalism, against American imperialism, and really 
trying to teach us what he means by building the beloved community, because we use that word a lot, but King says that we need a revolution of values. He says the triple threats facing humanity are militarism, materialism, and racism, and that we need a revolution of values that's connected to public policy Mm. legislation, but we need this moral and political revolution, and not the cheap morality of the gossip of who's sleeping with who, but the, 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 the wider morality of how are we treating those who are suffering and why do so many people in the United States, both then and now, uh, go to sleep uh, hungry at night? Yes. We've got over 37 million Americans oh, every day who, 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 who can't afford food. And why is that, right? Is that? So King, King is really this extraordinary figure. And it's that revolutionary King who is connecting uh, the white supremacy that he's combating during America's second reconstruction, who can really connect to our time because we're, you know, this is America's third reconstruction that we're in right now. And when we think about that first, second and third reconstruction, they're always about both battling to end white supremacy, but also battling to achieve black citizenship and dignity. So we have to balance out when you think about that history Black history is not just about the pain, trauma, and suffering. It's also about the joy and the dignity and the efforts at citizenship, the creation of black churches and sororities and schools and fraternities um, and, and, and a political and a civic culture, right, uh, that has helped to transform democracy, uh, even though uh, black people are uh, never acknowledged at, at, at having given um, American society uh, the potentiality to be much greater than even the founders would have imagined. Well, one of the great things about American culture at large is that we like stories, and I think there's this uh, hunger that's increasing more and more in a lot of the movies that are shown, the interest in actual black history. It's stuff a lot of you know white people don't know, and to there's you know it's it's making money for Hollywood. So what the heck? It's you know people are interested in it, and it's fascinating to me how, as you said, back you know during the Watts rights and others that that a lot of you know the white racists blamed uh, black people. So, oh, we'd be at peace now if it weren't for you guys messing it up. They're still saying that about Black Lives Matter. It's amazing to me how we just haven't learned that. But I. You know, it's all there to be learned, and I'm pleased to see the increased hunger. And I have to ask about, I was tremendously inspired by Martin Luther King's Riverside Church speech on April 4th, 1967. I have long found it so curious, and perhaps not a coincidence, that his assassination came one year to the day after that speech where he uh, spoke about the Vietnamese people being part of the same poor people's struggle uh, and, you know, worldwide. What what did Martin Luther King's struggle look like from that point? And what what was the effect of of that speech on his civil rights-only supporters? And what was the real significance in terms of his uh, uh, evolution of that particular speech, April 4th, 67? Well, I think that speech really amplifies um, Dr. King's anti-colonial and anti-imperialist uh, credentials. Uh, one of the things that I write in The Sword and the Shield is the way in which King and Malcolm really converge on the scale of anti-colonial politics, right? 
Um, Malcolm goes to the Middle East in 1959. King goes to Ghana in 1957. All spends right. a month in India, 1959. Uh, meets with uh, Ahmed uh, Ben Bella, the president right. of Algiers in 1962. So they you know, King's um, in contact with Tom Maboya, the vice president of Kenya, before he's um, um, killed. So very much so. I think what 67, though, does is really put it out there where not only is King this anti-colonialist who's willing to criticize European powers, because uh, King criticizes South African apartheid, he, you know, he's, he's definitely right there, but he's willing to really publicly criticize the United States and say, say that the United States is really the world's leading superpower, but also the world's leading colonial power, right? Yes, yes. And when we think about the U.S. as a colonial power, it's not just Puerto Rico, Asian Pacific Islands. It's really when we think about our handling of the Cold War and the thousands of military bases and what we did in Cuba and what we did in so many different other places uh, in terms of organizing coups. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that continues, right? Whether oh, yeah. it's invasion of Iraq or Grenada or Central America or Latin America, Nicaragua, uh, the Sandinistas. I mean, you know, we have a harsh, harsh history. And so I think what that does globally um, in, in that, you know, by 68, 69, you think about the year of the Panther, Black Panther globally, right. is really burnish his credentials as this anti-imperialist globally. I think the effects are mixed uh, nationally. So there's going to be a peace movement um, and a, and a multiracial peace movement, anti-imperialist movement, third world revolutionary movement that King is going to be a part of. Uh, I think he's going to be marginalized within mainstream movements. And I think one of the things about the white um, left and, and white human rights activists is the racism and white supremacy of even peace and conflict studies right now in the United States means that you never see black people as part of a human rights agenda, right? You never see black people. And so King, King trying to push back against the war in Vietnam and American imperialism and really racial capitalism because he sees the connection between the Vietnam War, the Great Society, the urban rebellions and the police brutality and immiseration of black people and brown people in the United States and globally. And he's making those connections very explicit. Malcolm saw those connections too. Yeah. And Malcolm saw them um, um, firsthand, both whether you think about Harlem or Malcolm's international uh, sojourns abroad. Uh, but I think that for King, it's going to be a double-edged sword because yeah. he comes out against the Vietnam War when the Vietnam War is still popular polling-wise. Most Americans don't oppose the Vietnam War until after 1970. And he's coming out against a war that's going to stretch on for another eight years. Yeah. So, you know, just to show you, because some people say, well, Vietnam is unpopular. Well, it becomes unpopular, but it's not, it's not in 67, you're still early. And that's why what's interesting is that Malcolm comes out in 64 against the war in Vietnam. SNCC. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee comes out against it in January 66. So King is, is, is fairly late to the game, but when he comes that last year, he comes on very, very strong and is, still has enough media credentials to be on Face the Nation, to be on all these places. Uh, young people are so excited, they want him to run for president on a third-party ticket with Dr. Benjamin Spock. Yeah. So wow. we do see King can still speak in front of 7,000 students at University of California, Berkeley. He can still speak before 3,000 uh, folks, um, Passion Sunday sermon, uh, Passion Sunday sermon 
uh, on March 31st, 1968 at the National Cathedral in Washington. So he could still attract some attention, but certainly um, donations and, and uh, the kind of mainstream uh, support and glamour uh, has, has dissipated uh, by 67. Mm-hmm. And polling data shows us that he's becoming very, very unpopular among whites who, as King starts to really criticize the country, they start to also equate him uh, with violence. They start to say that, you know, his movement is a violent movement, oh, wow. even though it's not a violent movement. So it's really, it's very, very interesting what happens to him and his legacy. Well, it I always had the impression that given the fact that Martin Luther King still had the power uh, to uh, energize and, and, you know, he had the magnetism, that when he came out so clearly against the war in Vietnam, that certain powers didn't like that because he was so powerful. And the fact that he died one year to the day afterwards, uh, maybe a coincidence. I don't know. I tend to not think so. And I try not to be too conspiratorial, but I think there was a reason he had to be killed because he was uh, popular and he was uh, threatening the powers that be, which perhaps he hadn't been seen as doing before. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, history professor Peniel Joseph about his new book, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And we talked about the poor people struggle. Many today still buy into the notion that it's up to each individual to pull him or herself up by the bootstraps. If people are poor, it's their own fault. And people blame themselves, uh, as they did in the uh, Great Depression in the 30s. What did the two leaders say about how policy affects poverty in America? And today, uh, you know, a revolution of values. It doesn't have to be that way. There don't have to be so many uh, poor people, uh, food insecure in America. So it's it's still true. And uh, what did they have to say about how policy affects poverty in America and what could change? Well, I think um, Malcolm X is very clear in terms of that this ghettos and racial segregation were the result of structures. They were the result of processes and institutions and represented structural violence against black people. Um, Dr. King was clear about that as well. And I think the policies um, that Dr. King wanted were policies that eradicated um, racial segregation in public schools and neighborhoods uh, and in, in institutions, politically, socially, culturally, economic, uh, in society. And I think that when we think about open housing that was passed after Dr. King's assassination, we still never had actual genuine fair housing or open housing in the United States. The high point of racial integration in public schools is 1988, according to the data. Mm. And voting rights were immediately um, suppressed in many areas. And by 2013, the Supreme Court agreed with with new, new rounds of voting suppression by gutting yeah. Uh, the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, right, which is why we have all all kinds of um, ID laws in Texas, oh. where I live, and other places that just circumvent why people like John Lewis and others struggled and many died for voting rights here in America. So I think that policy-wise, King was very, very intent on um, doing a couple of things. Uh, he's calling for uh, racial truth, justice, and healing in multiple ways. The truth was telling our story to each other 
in a way that um, we had a common understanding of the history that was impacting all of us, right? And that's, that's uh, it's interesting, um, Amanda Gorman, who is the brilliant oh, yes. youth poet laureate, um, and gave that, that brilliant poem, The Hill We Climb, where she talked about being an American is not just about the pride of, of the place you're from, it's the past you step into, right? And, and so what, what King was challenging us, and so was Malcolm, is to understand that past. So first, one of the reasons why white people don't understand American history is that they don't have an understanding of, of, of African-American uh-huh. history, you know, Native American history, any, anybody's history, right? <laughs> and they have this sort of sanitized, whitewashed uh, version of, of this country's history. Once we were all on the same page, then we could get to the justice part, which is really eradicating um, the thousands of racist policies that, even if they're not explicitly racist, the outcomes um, lead and promote racial disparities, right? Uh, And then finally, the healing would be uh, that reconciliation that people wanted, but not on the cheap. So I think that King might have initially led with talk of reconciliation during the Montgomery bus boycott, Mm. but post 65, he's really leading with talk of truth and justice and not reconciliation, which is why in the last speech, he says, we've got some difficult days ahead because King realized um, at the end of his life, when he saw whether it's Canton, Mississippi, where, where the police and the troopers are beating demonstrators who are nonviolent 66, but there's no, this time there's no help from the federal government, uh, whether it's Newark and Detroit in 67, whether it's his own efforts in Memphis in 68, he realized um, the depth and breadth of white supremacy really for the first time, for the first time. Malcolm had always realized it, which is why Malcolm is so vociferous in saying that American democracy is nothing but American hypocrisy. You know, mm-hmm. so Malcolm says, if you're fighting for democracy in the United States, you're fighting for something you haven't had, you don't have now, and you never will have, right? King doesn't come to that realization until it's too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, King King really is the, the, the king who's struggling between 55 and 65. Um, intellectually, he might know, well, maybe this is deeper than just meetings with presidents and mass marches, Right. But politically, morally, it only comes to head during those final, really, two and a half years. And once he realizes that, um, he realizes that, uh, one, he's not, it's not going to happen in his lifetime. Yeah. So in the final speech, he says, you know, I may not get yeah. there with you. But he also realizes that there has to be fundamental, radical, transformational change for things to get better. And... It's you know I, I've often said, and people who listen to the show regularly might be tired of me saying the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But for many decades, Black Americans have known and taught their children to behave in a certain way when confronted with police. I I wonder I wonder if the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor got the attention of the majority of white people who never experienced racist police violence you know, witnessing in real time the slow murder by kneeling on that neck startled the world that was outside of black experience. As a historian, your take on the historical significance of this incident, could this be a pivotal moment, do you think? I'm hoping. 
Yeah, no, I hope. And, and I think in some way, ways it already will be, but we'll know fully um, as time progresses to see if, we, if we've reached a tipping point where 10 years from now we see that there's different um, outcomes in terms of racial disparities, uh, whether we're thinking about positive social economic indicators where black people are always uh, underrepresented or negative social economic indicators where black people are always overrepresented. So some of this is connected to mass incarceration, but it's also um, wealth in the country, income, um, health outcomes, uh, whether people live in environmentally toxic areas or not, whether their children have asthma or not, whether they're able to start up small businesses or not. So there's, there's really thousands of different ways where this impacts all of our lives. I think the the hopefulness is the fact that 15 to 26 million people came out, large, large mm. numbers of whites, majorities of, of whites, and even predominantly white states like Washington, Utah, others, you saw Oregon, um, folks marching for Black Lives Matter. So that was very, very important. And that, that really is historic in the sense of um, there weren't that many whites who were marching uh, during the, the modern civil rights era, during America's second reconstruction, let alone during the first. So the fact that you you had that many people who wanted to achieve a different country uh, is very, very hopeful. Yeah, just seeing that in real time, I mean, I hate to even think about that, but who can forget? Nobody can. So maybe we're at a point, you know, the Republicans today have have morphed into this cult of personality all all around that orange thing. But neither of the two leaders of which we speak today would have wanted cults of personality, I don't think. Um, And... You know, it's still going on. The Democrats have the majority right now. And I have to say, I was thrilled when in his inaugural speech, President Biden used the words systemic racism. That to say that, I think, is something perhaps significant. Maybe it's wishful thinking, despite my being taught that history moves ever forward in a straight line. I, I do believe it moves in many directions at once. You know, white supremacism has risen to what had been an unimaginable level, see, January 6th. Where do you find hope today? Well, I think I find hope in the fact that so many different people are organizing uh, and learning about this history and trying to organize for a different different future. And they're really interested in uh, Dr. King's notion of building the beloved community, Malcolm X's notion of turning the civil rights movement into a human rights movement. And they're wanting to educate, organize, and agitate on behalf of that new liberated future. So you see it in folks who are trying to transform the K through 12 system and where we can teach about everything from racial slavery to a much more sophisticated understanding of democracy. Um, It's really in so many different, different ways we're seeing this, um, on multiple different fronts. Uh, We see the Black Lives Matter movement, how that's really impacted all of us to think about the criminal justice system, how the criminal justice system is uh, a panoramic panoramic gateway to multiple systems of oppression. Um, So we've seen this really impact all of our lives and people searching for ways uh, to become anti-racist, to center racial justice in every part of their lives. So I do think that gives me hope um, and I do think we do have this generational opportunity because of what's happened, the pandemic, uh, the protests, uh, the election and the election outcome. 
um, to achieve a racially just country, um, even within our lifetimes, but we just have to do the work. Well, as somebody said, something like the uh, arc of history moves slowly, but it bends toward justice. I probably messed up the words there, but I I still have that hope. Thank you so much for being here. Go ahead. Yes, as I say, that's Dr. King uh, uh, quoting the abolitionist theater, Theodore Parker, the arc of the moral universe is, is long, but it bends towards justice. Thank you. Thank you. you got, it's much better than I would be. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Peniel Joseph, his new book is The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. In the current movie, One Night in Miami, Malcolm X chides Sam Cooke for only doing songs about love and partying. Well, that did move him, and he created this beautiful, hopeful song about their common struggle. But I know 